Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney, and this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome to a two-parter. Um, hopefully you guys like these. We sometimes do. This one was very long, um, but it is a much requested, highly requested, more often requested, you know. It... Obviously, this intro is going great, guys. Yes, yes. I'm on a roll. Courtney and I did not record last weekend, so we're just uh, trying to get back in the swing of things. But, you know, all that to say, this is a two-parter. So if you guys like to listen to two parts together, you can either, one, go to our Patreon page where you get part two immediately. Um, or if you guys want to wait till next week, it's out for everyone. If you want to listen to both at the same time, we understand that, too. So just putting that out there before we get started that this is a requested two-parter yeah and we're gonna put in the title description that it's a two-parter because there's nothing I hate more than starting a podcast that goes okay now this is a two-parter and I have to like pause it because I'm like I can't I can't not listen to them together or Mm -hmm. I forget too much basically because I listen to so many true crime podcasts it'll all just fused together in my head so the worst is when they wait until the end of part one to be like Okay, and that's where we're going to leave today. And I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. Yeah, it's a betrayal. Um, yep. One podcast I listened to has been trying, because people were getting really mad, because they were like, you're not saying that these are like multiple parters. Like, this is how we like to listen to it. Mm-hmm. So now they're like, don't get mad. It's a two-parter. But they still <laughs> don't put it like in the description, in the title. Like, they just say it. And I'm like, can you just put it, just put yes. it in the title, please? Like, we get you guys. Yes, agreed. Um, as far as updates go, we do have um, an update from the, I think it's Colorado. I'm pretty sure. Here I am talking out my ass again. Um, so <laughs> I'm pretty in sure 20- also, but maybe we're both just wrong. So, <laughs> so um, in 2019, Elijah McLean did die. Um, he was walking. I think he did have um, some mental health issues. Some There was something. I don't remember his exact diagnosis. I want to say he was on the autism spectrum, but I'm not 100% sure. I think that as well, but here we are again, talking out our butts. Anyway, That's all we do. <laughs> um, basically, he was, like, confronted by the police, and he was saying, like, please don't touch me, please. You know, he did not like to be touched, which mm-hmm. is com- people should respect that, especially since he wasn't doing anything yeah. wrong. Um, but basically, they used a very, very, very strong like sedative to give him like enough to like knock out a bear and this man was like 120 pounds like he was very very skinny very tiny Mm -hmm. he did die um so now finally in 2021 two years later three officers and two emts will face criminal charges in his death Mm -hmm. so it took way too long but at least there is some justice like coming um i'm pretty sure with this one as well i heard somewhere that like the three officers also like took a picture, like, making fun of him or making fun Mm. of, like, a protest someone did. Something like that. But hopefully they all will actually be, like, indicted, found guilty, whatever, on these charges. But at least it is, like, a step in the right direction Um, Mm -hmm. in another one of these police abusing their authority cases. Yeah, definitely. And we're finally seeing some movement, you know, in these cases that things are heading in the right direction. Again, like we said a million times on this podcast, we just want people to be held accountable, like 
if you make a criminal mistake, you still make a criminal mistake. I mean, it doesn't matter yeah. what your intentions were. Like, if if a citizen does the same thing, they will be charged. So that's why it doesn't make any sense yeah. that, you know, police and EMT are able to get away with this like that. So, um, as you guys know, I'm fascinated with this case of the family that was found dead on the hiking trail in California. So I'm always looking it up to see if there are any more updates. Still no, like official cause of death or anything um i think we mentioned last time they ruled out toxic algae that they figured out that was not it they have closed down that trail because they have some concerns about something toxic in the air um nothing confirmed and they're also possibly looking into lightning um it is very rare to one be struck by lightning and two to die after being struck by lightning but it is possible and it doesn't always show like a physical sign which um I did not realize you would think there would be some kind of physical sign of that trauma, um, but it can just lead to a brain injury or a cardiac arrest without any kind of physical sign. So that's a possibility, but they are still looking into that. So of course, as always, we will let you know when we learn more information because I am just truly fascinated by this one. Yeah, that one is crazy how it's just like, The whole lightning thing with me is, like, were they all four struck and had the same reaction? Because you don't necessarily, like, die of lightning, so it's kind of weird. And, like, I really feel like maybe there was, like, something toxic they breathed in that maybe has not been identified yet. But, like, I feel like that has to be, like, the simplest, quote, like, idea Mm -hmm. with this, basically. Like, I feel like it has to be, like... Or it's aliens. I don't know. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> um, I also looked up recently the Piedmont Park, Park murder. Mm. Um, still doesn't look like anything with that. Um, but there were more people attacked in Piedmont Park during the day. So at like 5 p.m., mm. this man like went up to this woman and was just like screaming at her and stuff. So a mm. lot of people now are kind of being like very weary of Piedmont Park because it's like this is the middle of the day. Like and yeah. people are getting screamed at. So Wow. Super crazy. Um, But since all this is kind of, like, sad, I don't really have a happy story, but I have a crazy story that I have to tell that Jacqueline's not heard yet. So. I've had to wait, like, a week to hear this story, guys. So. So, I went back and listened, and I didn't say where I was going out of town. I'll talk more on my out-of-town trip later, if you can guess what my (laughs) perk of the week's gonna be. Um, Spoiler, Courtney. Everyone (laughs) looks forward to that so much. (laughs) I'm just giving you a little taste of what's coming. So (laughs) I didn't say where I went. So I'm going to try and keep this as like anonymous as possible because I don't want to be sued if this comes out, basically. (laughs) And it's not that strange of a possibility. Anyway, so basically we found an Airbnb that was like basically kind of in the downtown area um and it was like above a bar but the bar was closed and the guy was like yeah it's closed due to covid you know just really hit hard da, da, da. Mm-hmm. so i was like man that's so sad that this bar's closed that'd be so cool to like chill at this bar and then just come up to bed like a door away so crazy so i was like googling like when will it reopen because it seemed like such a happening place um And apparently this isn't the first time it closed. It closed back in 2017 when the owner was accused by two women and now it's been more of rape. Hmm. Okay. So I was like, oh, okay. And so he sued them to silence them. So they sued him back. So it was like this whole like legal lawsuit of like suing each other back and forth. 
And I was like, dang, that is terrible. And also, whenever these women accused him, his entire staff quit. Like, people who'd worked for him for years, the entire staff quit and he had to close down. So I don't know if it ever reopened or if it's still closed down from that. Mm -hmm. And he's the person's just saying COVID. But I was like, okay, well, this person, this bar owner, his name is, let's say, Robert. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that's okay. I'm renting an Airbnb from a guy named Randall. It's fine. Different names. Uh Uh-oh. Until Curious Cat over here <laughs> decides to look at Randall's bio on Airbnb, who says, I have a twin brother named Robert who lives above this Airbnb and helps me maintain it. The rapist was sleeping above us the entire time. Uh, wow. Wow. Yep. He was sleeping above us the entire trip. So, And I find mm. this out on night one. Mm. No, no, and no. I basically did not sleep all weekend because yeah. I would wake up and be like, freaked out because i was like there is like a rapist sleeping above us like not at least nine women have come forward and been like he raped me wow that's yeah that is a crazy story it was it was very creepy and like all from a google search and me being too fucking curious because i was like (laughs) oh it's fine a different name and yeah i'm like there's no way that like another yeah robert lives above what this airbnb like this bar what if he doesn't really have a twin and they're both i thought that exam thought (laughs) i was like but i also was like talking to kevin i was like maybe like randall isn't like it is his twin brother but like he has nothing to do with it and like robert just does it under his name because like if he's like if my name's out there people are gonna know what it is yeah like no one's gonna (laughs) but wow yeah so it kind of freaked me out and like The place we went to, Kevin and I both were just, like, unimpressed by the city. So, like, Mm -hmm. Monday, we were just like, let's go. And it was very (laughs) weird, too, because he gave no checkout instructions at all. There was none on the listing. Like, nothing. And checkout was 2 p.m. And I was like, that's weird. 2 p.m.? That's so late. So, when Kevin and I were, like, getting ready to go, like, getting up and, like, showering and stuff, like, I messaged him, like, hey, we're probably going to check out soon. Like, anything specific you want us to do? Mm Mm-hmm. Never replied. So then, like, an hour later when we were leaving, I was like, okay, well, I don't know what you're going to do with the towels. So I left them in, like, the bathroom floor Mm because, like, previous Airbnbs, like, that's what they ask you to do. And, like, I left it, like, how we found it. Like, he had the door unlocked and, like, the key somewhere. And I was like, okay, like, just left it like that. Never responded. That's super (laughs) But he finally gave me my review and gave me a good review. So I was like, okay, I don't really care. But I was, like, whispering to Kevin. I was like, what if he has microphones in here <laughs> what if he can hear us because he's above us he's above us walking around oh, God. so yeah that is um that was my that's very creepy and quite trip. a story <laughs> yeah and it was something that would only happen to me yeah probably so for sure <laughs> that's that's courtney's luck but uh i mean nothing happened we were fine mm-hmm. um it it gave us a p- place to sleep it was a fine airbnb like i left him a good review because i was like i mean nothing's wrong with this place yeah i'm not gonna be like very creepy and odd and uncomfortable yeah but at least i'm not there anymore yes (laughs) now that you heard that crazy story we can get into our crazy story which if you can tell by the title is the zodiac killer never heard of him me either (laughs) who is that (laughs) 
Um, so our resources for this week are Zodiac, the shocking true story of the hunt for the nation's most elusive serial killer by Robert Graysmith. Um, so he was also like a political cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle. And he was like there when the Zodiac's like cryptic messages were received. So he was very like hands on Mm -hmm. with everything. And if you guys have seen Um, the 20... 16, 17-ish movie Zodiac somewhere. I think it's older than that. Is it? Okay, I'm going to look it up, but I'm going to say it's like 2012. 2007. 2007? No. 2000. I swear to God. you Are you Googling it after I Googled it? I'm leaving this in. <laughs> that Jacqueline is here Googling it because she doesn't trust me. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I'm just... Okay. All right. It's a very old movie. <laughs> I was a little off. Just a decade. No big deal. I know. I was like, 2016. I was like, it was not a 2016 movie. Did. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, if you guys have seen the 2007 <laughs> Zodiac movie, um, it was very strongly based on this book. So that's all I was going to say <laughs> for that. It's a very good movie. You should watch yes, it. Yes, it is. Um. So we also use ZodiacKiller.com, a History.com article, a CNN.com article, and a ZodiacCiphers.com article. I guess the whole website, too. A lot of Zodiac websites out there. There are. Um, So the self-named Zodiac Killer terrorized California for years with the murders of young couples parked at Lover's Lanes. He went on to taunt police with letters and phone calls and claimed to have killed dozens of people, and his true identity has never been discovered. So, 17-year-old David Faraday was a varsity athlete and a top student at Vallejo High School in Vallejo, California, when he met 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen in 1968. So Betty Lou Jensen was a good student, and she was very respected in their community. So they planned to go on their first date on Friday, December 20th, 1968. And at 5 p.m. that evening, they spoke with friends on Annette Street about their date. So David left to go home at 6, and at 7.10 p.m., he drove his sister Debbie to an event. And he told Debbie that he and Betty Lou might be going to Lake Herman Road after their date because a bunch of kids were going there that night. Um, And Lake Herman Road was a very well-known, like, local lover's lane. They chose a road and not a mass, as someone who murdered their whole family's plot of land. (laughs) Yeah, that's usually um, more acceptable. Also, I mean, I feel like a lover's lane is self-explanatory, but... If there's anyone that's not familiar with that term or anyone younger that, I don't know. Anyway, before, in like the 60s, 70s, I don't even know if it went into the 80s. I don't know, guys. We're talking out our ass again. But anyway, it's where you just go as a teenager to make out in your car, so. I mean, I feel like lover's lanes are kind of still a thing. Like, I know a place in Knoxville that used to be, I don't, it was like a lover's lane, basically. True. Like, you know, like, if you want to, like, get some, you go there at night. <laughs> like, yeah, you might just true. meet random people. <laughs> but <laughs> people have gotten more savvy since then. But true. So David left home again at 730 p.m. And he took his parents station wagon to pick up Betty Lou. And he arrived at her house at eight. So her family thought they were going to be going to a Christmas carol concert that night at our high school just a few blocks away. Um, And Betty Lou was very nervous getting dressed in her room that night because she told her sister 
that she thought a boy from school was spying on her, and her mom had even found the side gate of the house open several times. So she did kind of have, like, a reasoning for this. She wasn't just, like, paranoid. (laughs) There was some Mm -hmm. backing behind it. So Betty Lou told her parents that she and David were going to a party after the concert and would be home by 11. So they did leave her house at 8.20, but instead of going to the concert, they hung out with another friend instead, and they left that friend at 9 p.m., but they didn't tell that friend, like, where they were going next. Also at 9 p.m. on Lake Herman Road, just outside of Vallejo city limits, two raccoon hunters noticed a four-door 1960s Chevrolet Impala parked next to the entrance to the Benishu water pumping station. So a truck was also driving out of the pumping station gate at that time, and at 9.30 p.m., two teenagers had just parked their sports cars off the road to adjust the motor, and they saw a car they thought was a blue Valiant coming down the road into Vallejo. Um, so it, as it passed them, it did like slow down and just stop in the middle of the road and then backed up towards them very slowly, which is like what nightmares are made of, basically. Um, when you're out at night and the car is just mm-hmm. backing up at you, that's when you sprint. Yep, I'm out um, of here. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. So the couple left and the car did follow them, but they turned off on a road and it continued straight ahead. And they did find it very odd, which... You should. That is a very weird situation. Yeah, that would definitely stand out for you, to you for sure. Yeah. And at 10 p.m., a local sheep herder saw the Chevrolet Impala by the entrance to the pumping station. So meanwhile, David and Betty Lou were seen having a Coke at Mr. Ed's, which was a local drive-in, and then they left for Lake Herman Road. So at 10.15, David pulled off the road and parked about 15 feet away in a graveled area outside the gate to Lake Herman Pumping Station. So, as previously mentioned, this area was a lover's lane, and police did periodically patrol it, because if the teenagers know it's a lover's lane, the police know it's a lover's lane. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it did warn people, like, of the dangers of parking in an isolated area. And the spot was popular also because, like, teenagers could see when the police cruiser was coming, like, around the road, so they had time to hide any beer or weed or, like, get dressed or, you know, whatever they needed to do. Mm Mm-hmm. The raccoon hunters did leave the area at 11.05 and reportedly saw Betty Lou leaning against uh, David's shoulder in her in the car. A woman named Mrs. Borgs was driving down the road on her way to pick up her son when her headlights lit up a hor- horrific scene. So David was lying right outside the car and he was covered in blood and Betty Lou was several feet away lying face down and also covered in blood. So, again, we're in the 60s, there are no cell phones, so she does have to drive past them to go get help, and she did just happen to pass a police car at 1119. So she flashed her lights to get their attention and told them what she saw. And when police arrived, David was still barely alive and the car was still running. Two shots had been fired into the car, and David had been shot once in the head at point-blank range while standing just outside the car. So it does appear that Betty Lou must have attempted to run away and was then shot five times in the upper right portion of her back. So the killer must have been a pretty experienced shooter to hit a moving target in gravel on a very dark road. Like, we saw Raynella. She couldn't even, (laughs) in broad daylight, really close to someone. So you have to be pretty experienced to be able to hit this, like, moving target at night when you can't see that well. Yeah, I feel like this comes up later when they're, like, narrowing down suspects. It's like, okay, it had to be somebody who had some kind of experience with weapons like this. 
Yeah. So there were 22 caliber casings on the floor of the car, um, and there were no tire tracks or signs of a struggle because the gravel area was frozen from being so cold that night. And Betty Lou was pronounced dead at the scene, but David was still breathing when police arrived, so they called for an ambulance. He did arrive at the hospital at 12.05 a.m. and was pronounced dead upon arrival. So the car was tested for latent fingerprints and police began searching for the gun or any other possible clue. Um, and overall, nine expended casings were found and police were careful not to contaminate the crime scene while searching this area, which is pretty good for the 60s. We've seen even in the 90s, some pretty mm-hmm. botched crime scenes. <laughs> Even in the 2010s. <laughs> Even, I don't know, a few weeks ago, probably. Right. Um, but, so, police also took 34 detailed statements about what David and Betty Lou were doing the last night of their life. So, like, as you heard, like, we had a lot of details because they were interviewing a lot of people to get, like, exact times when they could. Mm-hmm. So there was an initial suspect who was a boy from Betty Lou's school that had a crush on her and who had threatened David. So her family thought he could possibly be the one stalking her at her house, but he did have an airtight alibi and there really appeared to just be no motive for these murders and there's no indication of like robbery or sexual assault. So it's like, we have nothing here basically at all. Like why, why did someone do this? Like just so out there. So 22-year-old Darlene Farron worked at Terry's Restaurant in Vallejo, and she was described as super friendly and would talk to everyone, and patrons of the restaurant would wait in line just to get seated in her section, which means she must have been pretty damn good waitress. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I've seen people get very mad over a 10-minute wait, so... (laughs) (laughs) she wore braces and she did look younger than she was and she also physically resembled betty lou jensen so darlene knew david and betty lou from her high school and she was living with her second husband dean and their baby girl dina so her friends and family all noticed a change in darlene after she had her baby Um, she started going out all the time and wearing nice clothes and she lost a bunch of weight Um, and her husband didn't know like how she was able to afford these nice clothes because it's like where's this money coming from like i know you got a lot of patrons lining Mm -hmm. up but you're not (laughs) making millions at terry's restaurant in vallejo (laughs) (laughs) how are you affording all these clothes So on February 26, 1969, Darlene's 17-year-old babysitter Karen was watching the baby while Darlene and Dean were working, and she noticed a white sedan with a large windshield outside their apartment. So he was only parked about eight feet away and just appeared to be watching them, and he did light a cigarette inside the car, so she got a brief look at him from the glow of the flame. He was a heavyset, middle-aged man with a round face and curvy, wavy, dark brown hair. By the time Dean got home, the car was gone, so Karen didn't really say anything, but she did tell Darlene about it the next day. So Darlene told her she knew who this man was and that she had witnessed him kill someone. You know. (laughs) Um, She said he just frequently checked up on her. And friends reported that Darlene had gone to the Virgin Islands with her first husband, and they believe this is where she got mixed up with a rough crowd and witnessed a murder. Okay, can you imagine, like... Courtney, if you come home from your honeymoon and you're like, you know, we were just hanging out with these people and then like I witnessed a murder. And so this guy keeps just like following up on me just to make sure I haven't like told it. What? And like all of your friends just casually know about this. I'm sorry. My thing is like being the 17 year old, like you're 17 years old, just trying to make extra money (laughs) watching this kid. 
And, like, his mom is just, like, or her mom's just, like, yeah, that guy you saw was, like, kind of creepy. Like, I saw him kill someone. Don't worry about it. I would just be, like. Totally fine. I don't get paid enough for this lady. <laughs> like, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going to go watch someone else's <laughs> So when Darlene went to work at the restaurant that night, other employees told her that a stocky man had been there asking questions about her. So Darlene's sister also said that Darlene received packages from a strange man and that he was always very mysterious about what was in them. Hmm. And so the babysitter reported that she'd been covering up for Darlene because she was having multiple affairs. So the same man who'd been watching the house showed up at a painting party and Darlene appeared terrified of him and avoided him for the rest of the night. Uh, her sister was at this party and said it was the same man who had been leaving the packages. So witnesses at the party reportedly overheard him asking Darlene about her sources of income. And he would also show up at Terry's when she was working and everyone said she was afraid of him. So kind of a, a pretty crazy like life yeah. To think about, like, in the 60s, I don't know. For sure. So, on June 24th, 1969, Darlene did tell her sister that something big was going to happen in the next few days, but wouldn't say what. And then on July 4th at 3.45 p.m., Dean went to work, and 15 minutes later, Darlene called her friend Mike and arranged for a date to go to the movies in San Francisco at 7.30. So, at 6.30, Darlene and her sister went by the restaurant where Dean was working on the way to a 4th of July celebration and boat parade. So Dean said he was inviting friends over after work for a party and Darlene was like, okay, cool. I'll be home around 10. So Dean asked her to stop and get fireworks after the parade. And he said he and his friends would be there around midnight. At 6:45, Darlene went to Terry's to tell her coworker, Bobby about the party that night at her house. So they're going to have a, a real ranger. I don't know where her daughter's going to be. When all these people and all these fireworks? <laughs> She's going to be watching the fireworks. <laughs> you know, like you do. So at 8 p.m., Darlene called Mike and said she was just hanging out with her sister a while longer and would call or come see him late. So Darlene and her sister then went back by the restaurant where Dean worked after the parade. And at 10.15, she called the babysitters to make sure her daughter was okay. Just kidding. I forgot about that part. So I guess her daughter's at a babysitter's for who knows how long. <laughs> but is she... Gonna come home for the party? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? She's just... <laughs> can you imagine just being like, all right, here's my daughter, 17-year-old. Have fun. Have fun. Bye-bye. Mm, never. Um, <laughs> never. I, I haven't left my daughter with anyone that's not her father yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I definitely can't imagine a random 17-year-old babysitter. Yeah. Like, Especially, like, I get, like, when you're working and, like, you have no other choice. But, like, this, it's like you're just, like, running yeah. around. You're just, like... I'm just going to pay this babysitter because, okay. Because I got to go on a date with this man that's not my husband. Yeah. (laughs) So. Kind of weird, but you know what? You do you, boo. Whatever gets you through the day. Sure. (laughs) So the babysitter told her that one of her friends from Terry's had been trying to get a hold of her. So she went to Terry's and arrived there at like 1030. So she talked with the friend for about 10 minutes. And as they were leaving, she stopped and talked to an older man in a white car in the parking lot. So her sister said things seemed really tense between them, and when they left, she dropped her sister off at home, and when she arrived home, the babysitters told her that an older-sounding man had been calling all night but wouldn't leave a message. 
So Darlene was getting ready to take the babysitter home, but then the phone rang. And after she hung up with the mysterious caller, she asked the babysitter if they could stay until 12.15 so she could go get fireworks. Who <laughs> Darlene is doing the most. <laughs> like, doing a lot. A lot's going on here. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't have more than like two activities in a single day. And she's just like hopping all over the place. Like, I don't know how she handles it. So Darlene then went to Mike's house and picked him up instead of going to get the fireworks. So at 11.55 p.m., Mike realized that they were being followed by a light-colored car that had pulled out behind them. So Darlene kept turning on different roads and trying to lose him, but he continued to follow them until she pulled into the parking lot at Blue Rock Springs Golf Course and stalled her car on a log. So this location was only two miles from where Betty Lou and David were murdered seven months earlier and was another popular lover's lane in the area. So the car pulled up beside them and Mike asked Darlene if she knew who it was and she said, never mind, don't worry about it. And the car then took off at a high speed, but did return five minutes later. So the car parked next to them again and shined a bright light on them. Um, The man came out of the car with a flashlight on their faces and then abruptly turned it off. So it's like, if you can imagine, you know, having this bright light in your face and then it turns off like you can't see anything Mm -hmm. for a couple of minutes. I mean, you know, your eyes adjust to the dark where you can like start to see some shadows but if you have that blight that bright light and then nothing like you're going to be completely blind for a minute so mike thought that the man was a police officer so he reached for his wallet and darlene took her purse out so they're going to try to find their identification Um, and the man then suddenly fired a gun into the car and hit mike in the right arm he continued firing repeatedly and mike believed the gun had a silencer on it based on the sound that it made So Darlene was hit by nine bullets, with two of them piercing her lung and her heart, and Mike reached for the door handle to try to escape, but he realized that the interior door handle had been removed. So the man then turned and walked away, but when he heard Mike yell out in pain, he turned back to look at him. Um, So at this point, Mike saw his face, and he said that he was probably between 26 and 30 years old, with a large face, a beefy, heavy-set build, in his words. Um, No glasses, short, curly, light brown hair, and a military crew cut, and was maybe around five foot eight. So when the man heard that Mike was alive, he came back to the car to kill him and fired two more shots at him and also two more shots at Darlene. He then got in his car and left. So Mike had been shot in the left leg, right arm, neck, and chest area. So he made his way into the front seat to open the passenger, passenger door to get out, and he could hear Darlene moaning at this time. So shortly after midnight, George Bryant, who was the son of the golf course caretaker, was in bed when he heard rapid gunfire and then a car speeding away. So he looked out his bedroom window, but the spot where Darlene's car was was hidden by trees, so he couldn't really see anything there. And at the same time, three teenagers were in the area looking for a friend after going to a 4th of July celebration, and they saw a car in the parking lot, so they went to check it out to see if it was their friend. Um, So that's when they discovered Darlene and Mike in their car, and they hurried home to call the police. So police received that call at 12.10 a.m., but at that point, they had already received a report of gunshots. So they thought the first report was just someone shooting off fireworks for the 4th of July, so they didn't immediately leave for the scene until they got that second call. Um, And the officer does believe that if they had left immediately, um, that they would have passed the killer leaving the area, so he kind of had that regret that they maybe, you know, could have passed each other, which... 
I feel like if you're on the way to the scene, you're not going to, like, follow this person. You're going to be checking on the people that were shot. So it's like, would you have really been able to do anything anyway? And I totally get it because I have a ring doorbell and every two days somebody's like is that gunshots is that a car backfiring yeah is that fireworks and like <laughs> people being like it's fireworks it's not this it's not that shut mm-hmm. the fuck up like, especially you know, on the fourth of july sure. i mean yeah fourth of july that's the thing too like i'm this way too because i'll like hear things around my apartment and you're always like it's not a gunshot because you don't want it to be a gunshot mm-hmm. so if you're like it's the fourth of july it's gonna be fireworks yeah it's gotta be fireworks <laughs> definitely So when the police arrived, Mike was obviously in a ton of pain, and police did find it odd that he was wearing three pairs of pants, three sweaters, a long-sleeve button-down shirt, and a t-shirt on a hot July night. So. I don't even wear that in winter. No. Like, how do you even fit in that? Like, what size are, like, the pants that are on top? Like, are, are you just progressively getting bigger, like, in your sizes because you're, like, Piling on all these clothes. Where are these clothes coming from? We'll get into that later. But yeah, um, the police also knew Darlene because she had dated several police officers. Um, so they were like familiar, you know, with her. She was barely conscious, but she was trying to say something to them. Um, and the shell casings in the car appeared to be from a 9mm or a 38 caliber gun. So Darlene was pronounced dead on arrival at 12.38am when she arrived at the hospital. At 12.40 a.m., Vallejo PD switchboard operator Nancy Slover received a call. A man said, quote, I want to report a double murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway to the public park, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. Luger? I don't know. I don't know guns. Uh, (laughs) I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. So his voice was very calm and even the whole time. Um, Nancy tried to interrupt him to ask questions, but he just, like, continued speaking like he was reading the script and was not going to, like, stray from it. Um, So that call was traced to a payphone at Joe's Union Station, which was right in front of the Vallejo Sheriff's Office. So the dispatcher called back to the payphone right after, but the phone was off the hook. Um, They did speak to a witness who reported seeing a stocky man in the phone booth at that time and then leaving the phone off the hook before walking away. So people are seeing this man. Like, mm-hmm. he's not just this phantom. Like, people are seeing him. So when Dean arrived home with his friends for the party, he found his daughter and the babysitter still there. And they told him that Darlene had gone to get fireworks, and Dean assumed that she was actually out with another man. Um, and then, within an hour and a half of Darlene being shot, Dean, Dean's father, and Dean's brother all received phone calls that were just a person breathing on the line before hanging up, which is just so eerie. Yeah. So, Dean went out to look for Darlene and then returned home around 2 a.m. to take the babysitters home. So, Darlene did not have a driver's license, and the car that she was driving was registered to Dean's father, so he was actually the first one that received the call about her death. And after getting her address, police arrived at Dean's home to tell him that his wife was dead. They then took Dean to the station for questioning since Darlene had been shot while in the car with another man. So obviously Dean was a suspect. So police arrived at Darlene's work at 2.30 a.m. to talk to her co-workers. So one of her co-workers, Evelyn Olson, said that around Christmas time, Darlene had told her her marriage was about to end and it was then that she began dating other men, but like nothing serious. 
and several other co-workers also reported that she had dated many men, and many of them also mentioned um, a specific bartender named Paul. So Paul had bought a truck from Dean, and many people close to Darlene said that he kept trying to date her, but she refused him, and she also appeared to be afraid of him. So Mike went into surgery at 8.25 that morning to wire his fractured jaw and repair his left leg with metal pins and a cast. They also removed a slug from his thigh, and he did have extensive work done to his arm because of splintering from the bullet. So his tongue injury prevented him from being able to talk well, so obviously his interview with police after his surgery went really slowly. It was very difficult to, you know, get through these questions when literally this man is barely alive. Like, how do you even survive Mm -hmm. being shot that many times? Yeah. So Mike told police that he and Darlene drove to Blue Rock Springs to talk at his suggestion and not that they were followed by someone like he said previously. So now after his surgery, he's changed his story. He's like, no, I suggested that we go here, not, oh, we were being followed and we just pulled in there. I do wonder too, because like he did have surgery and you do have anesthesia, that sometimes you're just kind of... Even for, like, almost up to a week after, you can still be a little loopy. Like, I had had to go under, like, for a surgery once, and, like, it took me a few days to, like, really kind of formulate a full sentence. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, you know, things are expected to change. Um, During this interview, other small details were also changed, such as the color shirt the man was wearing and the type of car he drove. Again, I mean, you've just been through a very traumatic incident, so it makes complete sense that there would be um, some changes there. But police were also finding inconsistencies in Mike's story and the babysitter's stories. So when interviewing the babysitters, the police kept saying that Darlene had to have arrived home around 11 for everything to match up with Mike's timeline. But the babysitters said it was more like 11.35 when she arrived home and that she didn't leave the house until almost midnight. So she would have been murdered very shortly after leaving the house if the babysitters were correct. Um, She would have had to have driven very quickly to arrive at that location, um, which would make sense if they were being followed by someone like Mike originally said. And when police asked Mike why he was wearing so many layers of clothing, he said it was because he was self-conscious about being thin and he wanted to appear huskier. So I would absolutely love to be self-conscious about being thin. (laughs) There's nothing more in my life I would love. (laughs) I know it's a real thing. I know it's a real thing. I'm just making a joke. <laughs> I'm not trying to yes. to uh, uh, gatekeep people's feelings or whatever it is. I'm just making a joke. Courtney's like, don't write in. Don't. It was a joke. It was a joke. Please don't. <laughs> so police continued to investigate the crime scene and found that the killer had fired at least nine shots, but possibly as many as 13, which led them to believe that the weapon was a Browning. So at the time, that was the only publicly sold weapon that could hold that many rounds. And again, there were no signs of sexual assault or robbery, no identifiable tire tracks or footprints, like everything is very similar to the first crime scene. Um, And police did find a witness that reported seeing a man and woman argue in Terry's parking lot at 1030 that night. They also found it odd that Darlene said she was going to go buy fireworks, but she was not found with fireworks or any money to buy them. Like she was on the way to get fireworks, but she had no money on her. And Mike had mentioned the missing door handle previously, um, and the police who initially arrived on the scene noticed that it was missing as well. 
However, after the scene had been taped off for investigators, the door handle was suddenly back in the correct spot. Um, But this could have been due to investigators searching for bullets and like putting it back on without realizing that it was removed when they got into the vehicle. Mm -hmm. Um, So that could have just been a mistake with preserving the crime scene or somebody could have come back and put it back on. Not sure why you would. Yeah, because if it was Mike saying it was, like, missing, I could imagine, like, you've just been shot and you're like, yeah, I can't find a door handle when it's, like, actually there. But, like, the initial police are like, yeah, there's no door handle. And then now the door handle's back. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, could indicate something, like, we'll get into it later, but, like, this murder seems different from the others. It does. But. And, like, the whole, like, Darlene backstory. Yes feels different than, like, David and Betty Lou. Yeah. So, one theory was that Darlene was involved with witchcraft or had a financial situation with the man who kept showing up with presents and asking questions about her finances. And in her belongings at home, police found an envelope with a bunch of odd words written on it and some of them circled. So, they weren't really sure what this meant or if it could provide, like, some possible clue. Um, But police then turned their attention to finding Paul. But when they interviewed him, he said that he had attended a softball game sponsored by the Napa Police Department at 1030 that morning and then went to a veteran's fireworks display later that evening and was home by 7 p.m. His wife did confirm his alibi, so police cleared him, which we know that spouses aren't the most reliable um, witnesses to confirm alibis. But, you know, for some reason, they didn't feel like they had anything else to go on with him. Yeah. And so, at this point, bear with us, because things are about to get hard to say around here. So, and not, (laughs) and we struggle with saying the regular words, so. This isn't like a trigger warning. This is just, (laughs) I just want to be clear, because I'm like, here we are talking about people being murdered, and now we're about to talk about Zodiac's letters, and we're like, hard to say over here. (laughs) Hard to say. We're like, no, we mean literally hard to say the words that this man wrote on paper. (laughs) Yeah. So on Friday, August 1st, the first letter from the killer arrived at the San Francisco Chronicle. So the envelope had two stamps and was postmarked in San Francisco. So the letter read, Dear Editor, This is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July near the golf course in Vallejo. To prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only I and the police know. Christmas. One, brand named of ammo, super. Two, ten shots were fired. Three, the boy was on his back with his feet to the car. Four, the girl is on her right side, feet to the west. So, 4th July. (laughs) One, girl was wearing patterned slacks. Two, boy was also shot in the knee. Three, brand name of ammo was western. Um, And here's a part of a cipher. The other two parts of the cipher are being mailed to the editor of the Vallejo Times and San Francisco Examiner. I want you to print the cipher on the front page of the paper. In the cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Fry 1st of August 69, I will go on killing rampage Fry night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. So the letter did end with a cryptogram with strange symbols and was signed with like a crossed circle symbol. And there were several misspelled words in the letter. Um, No, I'm not an idiot and say fry when I meant Friday. (laughs) Um, 
That was uh, <laughs> if you and it's Fry F R Y yeah. too, not even an abbreviation for the actual word Friday. Yeah. So if you were reading that, you you would see in those parentheses S I C. You know, that's how it is. <laughs> Can't really do that on air. Um. <laughs> We, sh- we should get a, a sound effect to put in every time after <laughs> to let y'all know that we know that's yeah. not right. I'm not an idiot at the moment. So <laughs> <laughs> the San Francisco Examiner and the Vallejo Times Herald also received sam- similar letters with slight variations and the next section of the coded message. So police requested that the papers not print the entire letter because they wanted to make sure that certain things only the killer knew stayed private because... You know, if you print all these details, you're going to have hundreds of people being like, it was me. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But the papers did print some of the letter. And so each of the three sections of the message consisted of eight lines of 17 symbols each and included Greek symbols, Morse code, weather symbols, alphabet characters, navy semaphore, and astrological symbols. So copies were made of all three sections and sent to Naval Intelligence at Mare Island Naval Shipyard for deciphering. And the National Security Agency and the CIA were also helped, asked to help with deciphering this code. So Vallejo Police Chief Jack E. Stilts publicly asked that the author of the letter send a second letter with more facts to prove that he was the killer because he didn't believe it was real. Which I do think is pretty smart, being like, we don't think you're real, mm-hmm. which is, you know, every serial killer's trigger. <laughs> yeah, like, tell us more to prove that it was you, because you're just a fake. You're just claiming to do something you didn't do, and now he's like, oh no, I did it, let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> so all of the agencies mentioned above had difficult, like difficulty deciphering the code, so there were symbols from so many different codes, and they also couldn't tell, like, what order the three sections were supposed to go in. It's just completely random. Um, And it was later discovered the killer had likely used the number of stamps on the letter to indicate the order of the code. So one letter, one letter had two stamps, one had three and one had, and the last one had four. So they're like, maybe this is like what he's meaning. Mm -hmm. So on August 3rd, high school history and economics teacher Donald Jean Harden decided to take a shot at cracking the code from the newspaper, and his wife Betty joined him, and they started by figuring out which letters and words are most commonly used in the English language. So Betty was convinced the killer would start out with like an I statement and make it all about himself, and she also believed he'd use the word kill in the letter multiple times. So they searched for the same four-syllable combination occurring repeatedly throughout the letter. And when they discovered that, they were able to piece together some more words that used a double L. So this code was incredibly difficult because he used seven different s- symbols for the letter E. So you got like seven different E's on there. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, how in the world do you begin to go about, like, figuring this out when you don't even have, like, a consistent, like, code to go off of? I'm like, did this guy even have a code? Was he just like, I'm just gonna, this is an I, and this is an E, and I'm just gonna make it up <laughs> as I go. Yep, probably. There were also two different symbols used for both A and S. So, the poor spelling was another contributing factor that made this code difficult. So, especially if you're looking for the word kill and he can't spell it correctly. Like, Mm -hmm. super difficult. So, after 24 hours spent working on this code, the Hardens came up with the following message. 
I like killing people because it's so much fun. Fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill someone gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. Best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and they have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for afterlife. So, the letter ended with random jumbled letters, and when Hardin called the Chronicle to let them know he'd solved it, they told him to mail it in, and they'd give it to the police department because they were receiving so many calls from people, like, claiming to crack the code. Mm-hmm. But after police reviewed the deciphered code, Naval Intelligence used the Hardin's worksheets and double-checked them and decided that they were correct. So, this couple is gold, I just want to say. Yeah. Being like that. Hey, honey, you want to try to crack this code? <laughs> Let's do it. Like, oh, I'm just going to sit here on a Sunday morning, drink my coffee, crack this serial killer's code like you do, you know? <laughs> so on Thursday, August 7th, another letter was sent in response to Chief Stilt's request, and it was a three-page letter and used the name Zodiac for the first time. So he wrote, Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking in answer to your asking for more details about the good times I had in Vallejo. I shall be very happy to supply even more material. By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they will have me. On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leaped backwards at the same time, spoiling my aim. He ended up on the back seat, then the floor, and that thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with squealing tires and racing engine as described in the Vallejo papers. I <laughs> not done yet, y'all. <laughs> um, <laughs> I drove away slowly so as not to draw attention to my car. The man who told the police my car was brown was a negro about 40 to 45 rather shabby dressed i was in this phone booth having some fun with the vallejo cop when he was walking by when i hung up the phone the damn thing began to ring and that drew his attention to me and my car (laughs) (laughs) i love courtney's zodiac impression here (laughs) he's like a robot (laughs) that damn thing began to ring (laughs) <laughs> it's like those tiktoks where they have like the person read the yes. text <laughs> it's me <laughs> last christmas in that episode the police were wondering as to how i could shoot and hit my victims in the dark they did not openly state this but implied this by saying it was a well at night and i could see silhouettes on the horizon bullshit that area is surrounded by high hills and trees What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice in the center of the beam of light, if you aim it at a wall or ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light about three to six inches across when taped to a gun barrel. The bullet will strike exactly in the center of the black. In the light, all I had to do was spray, then dot, 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 no address. So, oh, that's me you. clapping if you cannot tell from that. <laughs> that was also, a... 
difficult one there. <laughs> that, was, that was rough. You did a fantastic job. Um, <laughs> I just have to uh, let y'all know about something in here that just cracked me up when Courtney was reading it. Um, when I did the notes for the section, I used a lot of voice text. So I was reading the book and holding my baby with one arm. So I was using voice text to read these atrocious letters. Um, and so I went back through and, you know, edited things that didn't come through correctly, but it capitalized weird things. And so it capitalized <laughs> racing engine. And so I just really don't know what that's supposed to be. Like, is this a I band? Know. Is this like, what capital racing engine is out there? Please let me know. It was like very weird letters, like capitalized too, like Drew State High School. I mean, high school kind of makes sense, but I'm like, these are words that aren't necessarily like all proper now <laughs> yeah it's a i don't know what um what google docs voice text is doing over here <laughs> so the hardens code was published on tuesday august 12th and many amateur code breakers thought that the letters at the end of the message could be an anagram for the killer's real name so they kept coming up with like various versions of possible names so Robert Graysmith, who's the author of the book and the cartoonist for the newspaper that we mentioned way back 50 minutes ago, <laughs> um, started looking for books about code writing to see if any could be linked to the killer. And the book The Code Breakers by David Kahn included a sample cipher alphabet and eight of the 26 suggested equivalents had been used by the killer. So they believe the Zodiac must have had a copy of this book. Additional code symbols were found in a book called Codes and Ciphers by John Lappin. So the code was called the Zodiac Alphabet. So obviously this got his attention because this guy's calling himself Zodiac. <laughs> and Graysmith started looking at local libraries for these books, particularly those around military bases because of the killer's like physical characteristics and using part of a naval code in his letter. They were like, maybe this could have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And professors at Stanford University recognized the odd mixture of, like, Christian and ancient cult beliefs in his statement about being, like, reborn in paradise with slaves. So they wondered if he could be a part of some, like, Satan-worshipping devil cult or a religion with roots in Southeast Asia that might, you know, believe something similar to this. Um, basically, they're just trying to find any possible lead as to who this is. Like, they're grasping at mm -hmm. every straw they possibly can. Yeah. So Cecilia Ann Shepard had spent two years at Pacific Union College at Angwin in Napa County, um, and she spent the summer of 1969 with her parents in Loma Linda. I hope that's right. Loma Linda? <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, California. <laughs> and on Saturday, September 27th, she went back to school for the weekend to pack up her things. So she would be transferring to the University of California at Riverside to study music that fall. So her friend Brian Hartnell had driven up from the Troutdale, Oregon that weekend to help Celia with packing. So they spent the morning packing up her stuff and after lunch they decided to go for a drive. So they planned to go to San Francisco but they ended up picking up an old TV at a church charity rummage sale in Napa. So they then stopped in St. Helena to get some things and meet some friends. Um, and then they gave some kids a ride home. Again, doing the most this day. Yes. Very busy day. Like, these people are just, whew, I don't know how they do it. I mean, I guess if you don't have, like, any form of internet or social media or <laughs> 
any kind of television, honestly. I mean, I guess probably, you do have a lot more time in your day. <laughs> you're like, let's just go driving because I have literally nothing else to do today. So true. <laughs> Um, by the time, so by that time it was getting kind of late. So Brian suggested that they go to Lake Berryessa instead, which is one of his favorite places. So earlier that day at 2.50 PM, three 21 year old women were in a parking lot when a man drove up and parked right next to them. So they said it appeared that he was trying to read something in his lap, but they didn't think he was like actually reading anything. Just kind of like a disguise here like oh just reading my paper um y'all know what we mean you guys have seen this yeah so they described him as 25 to 35 years old no glasses um he had straight dark hair that was parted on the side and he was driving a silver or blue 1966 chevrolet two-door sedan so the girls then drove on to the lake and an hour later noticed that he was watching them and he did drive off about 20 minutes later So Brian and Cecilia parked his car on the edge of the road near the lake, and there was no one else around, and they walked a short distance to have a picnic. And at around 6.30, they were lying on a blanket by the lake when Cecilia noticed a man walking near them and then disappearing behind a tree, which, pretty suspicious, like someone just walking up and Mm -hmm. hiding behind a tree. So when he came back out, he had a gun and was wearing a black hood that was square on top with three-inch square cross placed over a circle stitched in white on the front. Um, It kind of resembled like an executioner, um, and there were slits for his nose and mouth, and he wore clip-on sunglasses over them. Very, very odd. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't even know what I would be thinking if this person was walking towards me. Like, so much going on right there. (laughs) Um, He also wore gloves and had a bayonet-type knife that was at least a foot long, attached to his belt on one side, and a holster for his gun on the other. So he approached the couple and said, I want your money and your car keys. I want your car to go to Mexico. So Brian said he had like a drawl, but not really like a southern drawl, um, and that he didn't really seem well-educated. Like, he didn't really seem illiterate either, just kind of like an in-between, I guess. Um, And he said his voice sounded like he was between... 20 and 30 years old and he thought he was between like 5'10 and 6'1 and probably weighed between 225 and 250 pounds. So Brian handed the man his money and car keys and the man put the change in his pocket and tossed the keys on the blanket. He then put his gun in the holster and Brian said he didn't have like any more money but maybe he thought um like maybe he could help him like if there's any other way like he needed you know just trying to basically like bargain for anything you can at this point Mm -hmm. the man responded no time is running short i'm an escaped convict from deer lodge montana i've killed a prison guard there and i stole a car and nothing to lose i'm flat broke so brian told him he was wasting his time because he's like i don't have any more money like you're if time's running short Mm -hmm. you're gonna want to go rob someone else like we're we're tapped (laughs) out can't help you (laughs) we're tapped out um So the man instructed Brian to lie face down on the ground so he could tie him up. And he then had Cecilia tie him up and she made the knots like very loose. Um, But then the man did tie Cecilia up as well and tighten the knots that she'd made for Brian. The man then said that he was going to have to stab them. And Brian asked him to stab him first because he didn't want to see Cecilia stabbed. So the man pulled out the knife and began stabbing Brian in the back before stabbing Cecilia a total of 24 times while she rolled on her side and her front and begged him to stop. 
When he was finished, he tossed Brian's money and keys back on the blanket and left in his car. So Brian was able to use his teeth to undo Cecilia's knots, and then Cecilia was able to free him. Um, but at this point, they had both lost so much blood that they could barely move. Um, but a fisherman and his son from San Francisco were in a boat on the lake when they heard moans and went to check it out. So after finding them, they went to find rangers at the Rancho Monticello Resort and told them what they had seen. So when police arrived, Brian had crawled about 300 yards away from where they were stabbed. Um, the police called for an ambulance, but it was coming from Queen of the Valley Hospital, which was almost an hour away. So, like, you have these two people that are, have almost already bled to death, and then now you have to wait for this ambulance. So, at 7.40 p.m., someone called the Napa Police Department and said, I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of Park Headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Gia. Don't know if I pronounced that right. Um, when asked where he was, he said, I'm the one that did it, and he then appeared to put the phone down while the line was still open and walked away. So the call was traced to a payphone at a car wash that was four blocks from the Napa Police Department and 27 miles from the attack. So both of these calls that have come into police were close to the police department. Mm -hmm. um, police were able to get a palm print from the phone. And when police arrived at the scene, they saw that someone had written with a pin on Brian's car. It said Vallejo 122068 7469 September 27th 69 630 by knife. So he's basically like detailing his murders up until this point. Mm -hmm. um, he then had the same symbol that was on the letters that was sent to the newspapers. So they were able to get tire tracks this time and also footprints that were a size um, 10 and a half. And because of the depth of the footprints, they estimated that the killer weighed around 220 pounds. And they also discovered the shoe print was from a type of boot called a wing walker. And over 100,000 of them have been sent to Air Force and Navy installations on the West Coast. Um, so police are now highly suspecting that the killer is involved with the military like they previously thought. Um, Cecilia did die from her wounds at 3.45 p.m. on Monday, September 29th, and Napa residents were warned to stay clear of remote areas and to travel in groups. Um, fast food restaurants and drive-in theaters were just deserted, like people are not going out anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, some parents even openly told their teenagers, like, look, you can make out with your boyfriends and girlfriends at home if you just stay away from the lover's lanes. Like, we'll let you have privacy, you know, do your necking, just don't go out. Yeah, like, I'd rather you uh, have sex here than go get murdered. Just exactly. <laughs> turn some music on or something. <laughs> <laughs> So just after 9.30 p.m. on Saturday, October 11th, taxi cab driver Paul Lee Stein um, picked up a man near Pinecrest Restaurant in San Francisco. Paul was 29 years old and lived with his wife. He was attending San Francisco State College where he would graduate with a doctorate in English in just a few months. And he worked the night shift for the cab company and also sold insurance to be able to pay for his tuition. So the man he picked up in his cab that night requested to go to a residential neighborhood called Presidio Heights, and Paul logged it as Washington Street and Maple on his trip sheet. And when Paul arrived there, a man appeared in his headlights walking his dog, and the man in the back of the taxi then asked him to go another block. So, like, he saw that there was someone around, so he's like, eh, I need you to keep going. Um, so when Paul stopped the second time, the man pulled out a gun and shot him in the back of the head. He then took Paul's wallet and tore off a piece of his shirt, 
and at 9.55 p.m., a 14-year-old girl looked out her window and saw the cab. So the driver's head appeared to be in another man's lap, and the man appeared to be, like, searching him. Um, He then wiped down the inside and outside of the car with the piece of fabric he had torn from the driver's shirt, and he then turned and calmly walked north on Cherry Street. Um, So the teenager called police. Um, I think they were having, like, a party, so, like, several of them, you know, called the police together, Mm -hmm. and the call was logged at 9.58 p.m., Um, But unfortunately, the dispatcher mistakenly recorded the man as black. So when the call went out to police, they're all searching for a black man. And police did stop a stocky white man walking north on Cherry Street at 10 p.m. and asked him if he had seen anything unusual in the last few minutes. He said that he had seen a man waving a gun running east on Washington Street. So police then went in that direction. And when police arrived at Paul's cab and spoke with the teenagers, they learned that the man was actually white, so the description for the APB was reversed. Um, The ambulance arrived at 10.10 p.m. and did pronounce Paul dead on the scene. And when the homicide detectives arrived, they believed that this was a cab robbery gone wrong and that the murderer was an amateur. Um, So there have been some cab robberies in the area recently, so they're Mm -hmm. thinking that this is more in line with that versus these other killings. Um, when searching the cab, a detective found a 9mm casing under the seat, and the crime lab was able to get fingerprints that were in a smear of blood on a window. Um, there was also a handprint in blood that was retrieved from the beam separating the front and rear windows. Um, the killer had leaned forward on it to wipe the driver's dashboard area, and that's where he left a print in blood with his right hand. So now that they had the correct description of a stocky white man with a crew cut, police and their dogs fanned out and searched the entire area. Paul's boss said that his last dispatch was to 500 9th Avenue at 9.45 p.m., but he never showed up, so he must have picked up the killer on his way to that call. So using his trip sheet and the amount on the meter, police were able to track down the approximate location where he would have picked up the killer. Um, The search for the murderer was called off at 2 a.m. with no success. The teenagers who witnessed the murderer walking away worked with a sketch artist to develop a composite of the suspect. It was sent out to all the taxi companies in the area. Um, The fingerprints were ruled out as not being Paul's, so police used the cab trip sheet and went to the addresses where the passengers were dropped off that day, and they were able to locate about a third of them, so the crime lab went to their house, um, their houses to get fingerprints to rule them out as the murderer. So obviously in a taxi cab, you're going to have a ton of fingerprints. So they're doing the best they can to like, you know, narrow down who it wasn't. So maybe they can find out who it was. So at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, October 14th, the Chronicle received a letter that had been mailed in San Francisco the day before with the cross symbol from the previous letters in place of the return address. And when the letter was opened, a five-inch piece of gray and white cloth covered in blood fell out. This letter said, This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a blood-stained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The San Francisco police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles, seeing who could make the most noise. The car driver should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus in the morning. Just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. 
So, the newspaper staff immediately called the San Francisco Police Department Homicide Unit. Um, The homicide detectives who had been working Paul's murder scene immediately recognized his shirt as the fabric that was included in the letter. An emergency bulletin was issued to police as well as county and city school superintendents about the threat against school buses. So guidance was issued to school bus drivers on how to handle a violent attack. Um, They were told to continue driving the bus even on a flat tire, do not stop on the side of the road. Um, They were told to instruct the children to lie on the floor, continue driving, turn on all lights, and beep the horn until they were able to stop in a well-populated area, and then contact law enforcement. So all drivers were called in so that a backup driver could be on each bus in case the primary driver was killed and the backup driver could take over. State law required that when the driver left the bus to escort children across the street, they had to keep the ignition key on them. So because of this threat, the driver would leave the key with the backup driver who was to stay with the children. So this way, if the primary driver was shot outside of the bus, the backup driver could quickly drive away with the children. And police officers were also assigned to follow school buses. So obviously there's going to be some like mass hysteria going on. All this sounds good, but, like, maybe just take a snow day. (laughs) (laughs) For real. (laughs) Like, maybe we could just, like, cancel school for, like, a little bit or... And, I mean, also, I'm just, like, these drivers who, like, know this is a possibility and are still, like, showing up to work every day, like, driving these kids to and from school, having two of them on one bus so if one of them gets murdered, the other can take over. Like, Like, you as a backup driver show up to work knowing I'm here in case this guy gets murdered, then I can keep driving. Like, And you're probably like, I don't get paid enough for this. I don't get paid enough for this. 100%. Like, my county this year doesn't have enough bus drivers, so they're having to, like, drop kids off in shifts. So, like, a group of kids have to wait at school while they take one route home and then come back and get the second route to take them home. Like, we can't even get bus drivers to just, like, drive a regular bus and they got these drivers over here willing to be killed. (laughs) Like, Yeah. What? Yeah, I mean, I, like, I get it, but I would seriously be like, you know what? Everyone just stay home today. Like, it sucks. But let's just stay home. (laughs) Seriously. At 9 a.m. on October 16th, the two police officers who had spoken to the stocky white man walking away from the scene where Paul was killed spoke to their supervisor because they believed now that they had actually spoken to the killer that night. So the man they spoke to and asked if he had seen anything clearly met the description of the actual person they were looking for, but they didn't realize it because it was recorded incorrectly. Mm -hmm. Um, So these police officers helped draw a second composite sketch of the killer, and this one showed a man between 35 and 45 years old, weighing more than 200 pounds, barrel-chested, around 5'8", with reddish-brown crew-cut hair and heavy-rimmed glasses. Um, The San Francisco Police Department denies that the Zodiac was seen by police officers, but would not explain where the second composite sketch came from. So they're like, nope, our officers didn't do this, had nothing to do with it. So thousands of tips were called into police, and the police even made pleas for the killer to reveal himself. Um, The examiner even issued a statement asking him to come forward and said, quote, you cannot walk the streets a free man, there is no safety for you anywhere, and you will be caught, there is no doubt which is super eerie because it has been more than 50 years and he still has not been caught. So, yeah, um, they asked him to contact them, but he didn't respond. And he actually never wrote to the examiner again after that letter. So nine days after Paul Stein's murder, a Zodiac seminar was held in San Francisco with, with detectives from all of the murders, as well as the FBI and Naval Intelligence. 
Um, gun dealers all over California were also questioned and handwriting on registration forms were compared to the Zodiac letters. At 2 a.m. on Wednesday, October 22nd, a call came into the Oakland Police Department. This man said, this is the Zodiac speaking. I want you to get in touch with F. Lee Bailey. If you can't come up with Bailey, I'll settle, I'll settle for Mel Belly. I want one or the other to appear on the Channel 7 talk show. I'll make contact by telephone. So F. Lee Bailey was the Boston Stranglers attorney and Melvin Belly was another high profile attorney in the area. So the man who called in when the talk show was live said that his name was Sam. He said he needed medical attention because he got headaches, but then they went away. Uh, but then they went away when he killed. He did give a location for them to meet him, and the show host arrived with police, but of course the killer did not show up. Um, and at this time, police determined that the caller's voice was not the same on the show as the one made from the calls to the police departments. And eventually the call was traced to a mental patient at Napa State Hospital who could not have been the killer because he had been in there this entire time. So they're just kind of running all over the place with these leads and not really going anywhere. And that is where we are going to pause part one. Um, we will pick up with part two next week. Um, two longer parts, but it will be just the two parts. So yes. we'll make sure and get in all the rest of the, uh, the Zodiac information. So all that being said, Courtney, what is your perk of the week that you already gave uh, a little hint towards? So my perk of the week is quite possibly the greatest perk of the week I've ever had. Better than me getting engaged. Better than anything else. Uh, just kidding, Kevin, <laughs> if you listen to this when we're recording it. Um, but you also know it's true. Um, so <laughs> I finally got to see Phoebe Bridgers in concert, which I have been so excited for. I told my whole ordeal of getting tickets on the podcast <laughs> like a few episodes ago. And I got mm -hmm. the tickets and we went and it was absolutely wonderful it was incredible i was really mm -hmm. scared it was gonna get canceled because you know delta yeah. out here running rampant but <laughs> basically um if, like phoebe bridgers like required all like we were lucky because it was already an outdoor venue so any mm -hmm. indoor venues she had she switched to outdoor um but she also made sure like everyone had to show proof of vaccination and then everyone had to wear a mask so even though mm -hmm. we were outside Every person had to wear a mask when you weren't, like, actively eating or drinking. And people did enforce that because there was, like, people without. Yes. And, like, they would come up and be like, put your mask on. You're just mm -hmm. standing there. Put your mask on. Put your mask on. Yeah. So <laughs> it felt very secure because, I mean, I knew we were all vaccinated. We all had masks. Um, so that was really nice that she, like, required that as well and was like, I'm not yeah. coming unless you do this because we all want live music. But we don't all want to get COVID, basically. <laughs> right. But... That is my perk of the week because it was absolutely amazing. And it was so nice to be at a concert and a concert I've mm -hmm. really been wanting to go to. And she did not disappoint. She was incredible. So that's awesome. That is my perk of the week. Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? So my perk of the week, um, last weekend, Andrew and I took Millie down to Carolina Beach in North Carolina. So her first trip to the beach, um, first day she was kind of indifferent. She wasn't really sure. Second day, she screamed every time I put her feet in the water. So, you know, we like to look <laughs> at the beach, but she's not quite sure about being in it yet. Um, but we did just have a nice, you know, relaxing weekend. And then Millie also learned to roll all the way over during that weekend and is now a rolling machine. I mean, you put it down on her back and she's on her <laughs> tummy in like 
three seconds. Like, she's like, whoop, here we go. So now she wants to sleep <laughs> on her tummy, which has me freaking out. But, you know, it's okay. She's can move herself around. So I guess it's fine. But anyway, um, that is my perk of the week. It was a very nice, enjoyable weekend. And also had to throw in her learning to roll because, you know, why not? <laughs> yeah, it seemed like a good weekend. It's always nice to get away. Um, it was nice for us to, us to get away, Kevin and I, to the city we went that was very <laughs> underwhelming. Need I? Literally, okay, we were like, let's go. Like, we were basically downtown. We were like a mile from down, like kind of outskirts downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're like, let's go like to the downtown downtown. And like, we walked around and there was like nothing. And I was like, I have to pee. Let's find a bar. We could not find a single bar in the downtown of this like city oh my that has a population the size of Nashville. They have the same population as Nashville. And in their downtown, I could not find a bar. So I snuck into a hotel and went and peed. But <laughs> like, like we were just like, where do people go? Like, what mm-hmm. do you do? Yeah. There's nothing. Wow. And like a lot of places were like temporarily closed. And I don't know if it was like a COVID thing or like mm-hmm. a this city state thing. <laughs> but anyway. It was not a great city, but the concert was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and if you guys want to let us know where you've been going, what concerts you've gone to, want to go to, your weird Airbnb experiences, all those fun things, <laughs> you can do so on Instagram at Caffeinated Crimes Pod, on Twitter at Caff Crimes Pod, that's C A F F Crimes Pod, on Facebook at Caffeinated Crimes Podcast. You can email us at Caffeinated Crimes Pod at gmail.com. Um, if you feel so inclined and you are able to, you can head on over to patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes, especially if you want part two of the Zodiac Killer right now. It is available up there. Um, you can also, with different tiers, get bonus episodes, stickers, pins, monthly hangouts with us, join our Discord channel, all that fun stuff. Um, again, that is patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes. Yeah, and you'll get part two immediately right now and also when part two comes out for the regular listeners you will get a bonus so we don't make you go a week with like no episode yes like we you know we try to be fair here (laughs) so um and we are still doing our apple reviews giveaway i know big shocker who said (laughs) that coming um we are slowly getting close to 50 so if you could just um leave us a five-star rating um that would be amazing and when we get to 50 we will um choose an individual to get a pin a sticker and a ten dollar gift card to the coffee shop of their choice um and while i was doing this rant it reminded me we are also now on youtube yes we are if for some reason youtube is your preferred method of listening i mean some people are like it's just easier to do a youtube link that's fine um our episodes are going up on there so all of our most recent episodes are there. Um, we're slowly getting that backlog. It's just a little time consuming because we do have like 80 episodes. So um, it's not like super simple. So we are working on getting that like backlog up. Um, but hopefully all those will be up soon. Mm-hmm. Maybe by the time this is released, most will be up. Hopefully. Yes. Yeah. My goal, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Um but yeah, so those are slowly coming up. Um, so yeah, if you have a family member who's like, I don't understand a podcast <laughs> app, I don't understand that, you can just send them a YouTube link. Yes. Um, and if you want to go ahead and like, like and subscribe to us on YouTube and like get notifications, that helps us get like recognized. So maybe mm-hmm. like somehow we're going to get super famous on YouTube. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. But I did want to give YouTube a shout out if 
you do know someone who would be like, I'll only listen if it's on YouTube. We're there now. If you want to check that out, go for it. Um, We are also on TikTok. So check us out there as well, where Courtney has now done two videos. And maybe one day I'll learn how to do a TikTok before the trend ends that I'm trying to do. We'll see. I don't know. But we are on TikTok. So definitely follow us over there as well. Yeah. I don't know how TikTok handles work. Just I think we're caffeinated crimes yeah pod or something um <laughs> making a tiktok um is a bit more difficult than i realized with certain things uh, but i am very proud of our most recent tiktok so i would love yes. people to watch it because it took me a while to get those captions because you gotta <laughs> time the captions with the it was a lot but i'm figuring mm-hmm. it out and all of you tiktok stars mad respect especially like yes like anna x who does these like crazy transition shit like Mind blown, girl, mm-hmm. because I'm struggling over here with freaking caption or text or whatever. <laughs> but yes, so you can find us there. Slowly getting to all the platforms. If you have another platform you want us on, um, we won't be on OnlyFans because now you can't do sex work <laughs> on OnlyFans. So why would we go? <laughs> but anyway, well, that's all we would do there. <laughs> what else would I do but show my tits? So anyway, <laughs> uh, in the meantime, go have a cup of coffee and don't commit a crime. <laughs>